Think about it in terms of a decade. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. We have to get beyond this thinking that addressing climate change is a huge burden. This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Vahit Tabarki. And today we'll be talking to Christiane Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. We invited them on the occasion of their latest book, The Future We Choose, which they wrote after being involved in top-level climate change negotiations and climate diplomacy for decades. Christiane Figueres is the former UN climate chief and the architect and public face of the most pivotal climate agreement in history, the Paris Agreement. Tom Rivet Karnak was chief political strategist for the same agreement. Almost six years after it was signed, we will talk about whether it has lived up to its expectations. And while we are bombarded with doomsday scenarios, Christiane and Tom show us that there are reasons to be hopeful, optimistic even, that some sectors like power generation and light transport are transforming quickly. And maybe most importantly, that global mindsets are shifting. The book they wrote is therefore not only a cautionary, but also an empowering account of what can still be done, but only if we act now. Christiana, Tom, thank you for joining us today. Tom, you're calling in from London, the UK, and Christiana, you're in San Jose, Costa Rica, with some tropical birds chirping in the background. You wrote a very interesting and inspiring, thought-provoking book, The Future We Choose. And in it, you write that we are in a critical decade, which will determine the quality of human life on this planet for hundreds of years to come. Tom, if you look at the last six years since the Paris Agreement, where do we currently stand in facing this consequential decade? Well, thank you very much. So delighted to be here. Thank you for, for inviting us um, and great to talk to the audience. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a mixed picture. And like so much in climate change, there are many things that are going well, but nothing's going fast enough. So I would say since 2015, when the Paris Agreement was adopted, we have understood with even more specificity the scale of the emergency that we're facing. The science comes into sharper and sharper relief every year. One big moment that happened since 2015 was the realization that one, one, the difference between a planet that is 1.5 degrees warmer and a planet that is 2 degrees warmer is orders of magnitude more serious for people, for biodiversity, for livelihoods, for crops. You know, we thought in 2015 that it was a bit worse to go over 2 degrees. Now we know it is a lot worse to go over 2 degrees. And at the same time, what we've seen is the impacts of climate change have started manifesting faster and faster. I mean, the terrible fires in Australia is just one recent example, and there are many other examples around the world that we don't need to go into now. 
So on one hand, we have this accelerating exponential curve of emergency, of urgency, and of impact. And there is a real danger that that runs away from us and the impacts become so severe that it's no longer possible for us to save low-lying islands, to protect vulnerable communities, to protect precious biodiversity. So that needs to be on the front of our minds every day that we have not solved this yet and real failure is possible in this transformation. However, real success is possible too. And actually, the other thing that we've learned since 2015 is humanity is capable of mobilizing incredibly quickly. I mean, just a few of the hopeful trends. The degree of mobilization that we've seen on the streets in support of a low-carbon, clean energy, resilient future is remarkable. I mean, we have not seen people on the streets calling for change with this level of dedication and commitment for a generation. The young people have really changed the game in terms of climate change. At the same time, the economics have also evolved. So we're now seeing renewable energy cheaper than fossil fuel energy. We're seeing shifts to electric vehicles with phase-out dates sometimes inside this decade. We're seeing cities transform, companies transform. So Christiana sometimes says that her favorite definition of intelligence is that you can hold two contradictory points of view and realize that they're both true at the same time. And this is a classic example of this. Both of these things are unfolding. We need to understand the speed and the scale of it and ensure that we choose the right path while we still can. But choosing the right path proved to be difficult so far. Uh, Global emissions are rising. uh, The production of fossil fuels is still increasing. We continue to destroy the world's carbon sinks by cutting down forests. Where have we been lagging in the past six years? Well, there's several ways of seeing that. If you see it uh, per sector, then it is evident um, that there are a couple of sectors that have really been lagging and that are um, just beginning their transformation. The sector that has been, or there are two sectors, I would say, that have been most lagging behind. One is everything to do with heavy industry um, and heavy transport, which together are recognized as the hard-to-abate sectors because of the intensity of energy that they need. So everything from airline, um, air transportation, maritime transportation, um, heavy trucking, um, iron, steel, cement, all of that that is very uh, dependent on high-intensity energy has been lagging in its transformation, but is beginning its path of transformation. With the advent of green hydrogen, for example, uh, we now know that many of those sectors will be able to make a transformation over to, uh, to clean energy, not as quickly as the other sectors of light transport or power generation, but, um, but they're also starting. Um, the other sector that has been lagging in addition to, to the hard to abate industrial and, and transport sectors is the sector of land use. There we have been actually quite irresponsible in the sense that we continue to deforest, we continue to destroy habitats. That incursion into habitats is one of the main reasons for the advent of zoonotic diseases such as COVID-19. But it's also the reason why we have so many species that are disappearing and uh, why we are losing the stability of aquifers as well as the capacity of, uh, of ecosystems to absorb 
carbon dioxide and fix carbon into their biomass. So those two basic families, and, and the, that also, the land use sector is subdivided into um, forestry, into mangroves, into restoration of depleted soils. Um, there are many, many different subsectors that are um, included there. But those are the two big sectors that have been lagging behind. The other sectors um, have actually moved ahead much more quickly. The, uh, the one that is moving the quickest is power generation because there was an early investment into renewables, into first, uh, first solar and then wind. Um, and uh, those have come down in price remarkably, 80 to 90% over, over the past decade. And that has made them very competitive against the incumbent power generation uh, fossil fuels. So a very different picture, some moving uh, pretty quickly, um, some lagging behind, and right smack in the middle, I would say, is uh, light transport, everything to do with um, light vehicles, passenger vehicles, or public transport, um, buses, um, for example, that have already uh, started their move over to either electric uh, technologies or uh, with uh, the trucks and buses with hydrogen, um, and in the best of all cases, with green hydrogen. So it's not like we can say everything is moving at the same pace. There is a differentiation of the pace and the scale with which we're seeing that transformation. The book also delves deep into the individual action we can and should take and the personal mindsets that could empower us. But aren't we in a way blinded by the, what you can call a discourse of individual action when it comes to the climate crisis, while real change starts with systemic change and politics? So, so, so I think it's true that we have had to live with um, a variety of dichotomies on climate change. And part of the challenge um, is, and, and I feel like I've got some, some decades of experience looking at this, is, is that we tend to have answers to them that are cyclical. Right. So at a certain point in time, we tend to think, oh, the solutions to climate change are all about individual action. And then everybody tries to engage in individual action. And that inevitably um, becomes problematic and doesn't deliver a scale of an outcome that we might always hope for. And so therefore, people shift to systemic. It's about putting pressure on the system. And then that again becomes challenging. So we can then go back to individual. And those of us who've been around for a while can see <laughs> a few of these things sort of cycling through. Yeah. I mean, I hope now that there are some fundamental truths that have begun to exert themselves and some maturity that has deepened in the space, partly as a result of how long we've been trying to do this, but also as a result of the fact that it's now become so serious that we are more motivated to kind of get it right. And I would point two things out there. One is, I think there is a collective realization that climate change is fundamentally unfair. It's fundamentally unfair geographically, 
generationally, economically, and that that has to be taken into account in the way in which we respond to that. And that, again, going back to the, the marching on the street, I think that's part of what happened with the, the school children is it sort of poked that sense of justice. We realised when we looked at it that those young people had done very little to cause this issue. Um, however, their lives were going to be fundamentally impacted by it. And I think that's, that's one of the most powerful unifying factors that can bring people to this point and help them realise they need to take action. I think the other is where the solutions are going to reside. Um, so you talked about this a minute ago, but it's not true that individuals are powerless in this. Individuals hold enormous amounts of power. However, it is true that individuals can't solve this on their own, that we need other actors in society to also play their part. So this needs to be an everyone everywhere response. In the book, The Future We Choose, what we talk about as a response is based on the individual level because individuals also play every other role in society. Every business is run by an individual. Every country is run by an individual. And what we say is that each individual should take three types of action in relation to climate change. And it covers all of their ways of being in the world. The first is how they show up in the world and the types of attitude that they bring towards facing this most consequential decade. It's possible to face this decade and feel a sense of fear and trepidation and recoiling from how important and how consequential it is. However, that's not really a sufficient response when we're at this critical moment and we can decide to show up with determination and tenacity and commitment and dedication in order to make the change while we still can, even though it may be challenging and difficult. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the emissions of our own lives and that of our immediate family. Some people may say that this is meaningless because it's small. However, it can actually be very significant. Less than 10% of the global population, which will include most of your listeners in the city of Rotterdam, are responsible for a vast majority of global emissions. As a result of that, taking responsibility for our own footprint, our own climate footprint, if we then drive it down and we reduce it, can have a big impact overall. And what we tend to say is think about it in terms of a decade. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. Commit to reducing your footprint fully by half in the next 10 years. And actually that's, that's achievable if you break it down like that. That timescale contains the opportunity to change capital intensive items, change the way you generate resources, change the way you live your life. The other reason it's important to do that is because taking action makes you feel better about the issue. You feel more agency, you feel more control, you feel like you're participating in this unfolding future. And the third thing I would say is we also have to examine how we relate with power and how we interact with power in all of our roles in our lives. All of us are citizens, consumers, employers or employees. Um, we, you know, we, we may work at schools, we may work in hospitals, we may... We have a variety of roles and hats in our lives. In all of those roles, everybody needs to bring all of themselves to try to change those institutions as quickly as possible. How can we as individuals, but also work with the system to actually make sure that this can be done on the global scale we need? How can we make sure that they are actually going to be done uh, as quickly as possible? Well, um, obviously that is not under any individual's control. Mm -hmm. What we cannot afford to do is to fall into the very simplistic thinking that just because the global response is not under my personal control, that therefore I do not have any responsibility. That would be a tragedy. 
because there frankly is nothing in this world that is under our individual control. And that is both the challenge and the opportunity here to understand that in the 21st century, leadership is very much a distributed um, power. It is not centralized as it used to be. Leadership, responsibility, the agency to transform is in the 21st century much more of a bottom-up effort than it is a top-down. And so each of us individually, in each of the roles that we play that Tom has enumerated, all of us have that responsibility to use our sphere of influence to contribute to the solution. Furthermore, we have to get beyond this thinking that addressing climate change is a huge burden. Frankly, yes, it is a responsibility. It always was, and it will always continue to be a responsibility. But it is not a burden. We have to understand that it is actually a much better way of life. If we just look at food systems, if we change our diet to a plant-based diet, we are doing an extraordinary effort for our personal health as well for planetary health. So changing our diets and our eating, our eating habits is not a burden in that sense. It's actually enlightened self-interest. And at the same time, it helps with climate change. The same thing with transport. And um, the, the Netherlands is a fantastic example of this. Well, what is the percentage of um, population in the Netherlands that actually chooses a bicycle, whether it's summer or winter, to transport yourselves? You are probably the, the nation with most bicycles. Now, that is actually a very healthy transport mode, and you are healthier because of that. But it's also contributing to the health of the planet. Same thing with motorized transport in cities. The quicker we move out of the, uh, out of the internal combustion engine over to electric transportation or hydrogen transportation, well, we're going to have much healthier citizens because we will be cutting seriously on the air pollution in cities. We will also be having much less, not just air pollution, but noise pollution in cities, which will also contribute to our quality of life. So we have to get beyond this thinking, right? And um, that we have to do this and it's going to be a huge burden and we're going to have worse conditions of life or worse quality of life, that it is a huge sacrifice. Frankly, it's not. If we truly understand what it means for our personal lives to have a healthy diet, to have healthy transport, to actually be much, much more um, aware of how we heat and cool our homes, putting in efficiency into our homes, then we don't spend as much money in heating and cooling. So we have to turn this around. We have to understand out of our enlightened self-interest, how do I move toward a better quality of life and thereby contribute to a better and healthier planet? Can I now relate it to the last year now with the pandemic? We, we saw, of course, 
big shifts in societies uh, when it comes to well lack of justice also so for some groups who are really hurt by by the by the developments also in the economical level on the other hand uh, huge improvements when it comes to uh, work life balance when it comes to people working at home um, less travel of course so also momentum for societal change as was seen in the last couple of uh, nine nine ten months what do you see is is the biggest plus from the last nine ten months when it comes to the mission that we're on um but before we go to the plus side of uh of last year let us be very clear in saying that while we had a seven to eight percent decrease in greenhouse emissions last year which you could interpret as a plus in most countries that decrease in emissions came at the cost of human lives of jobs of well-being in many families and of increased poverty in many families. So let us keep that in mind and understand that yes, the reduction of emissions is something that we strive for and that we have to continue to pursue, but never ever at the cost of human life, human suffering or poverty. That is not the way that we want to decarbonize the society. Quite to the contrary, the pursuit of climate change, addressing climate change, is to reduce emissions while increasing the well-being and the quality of life of all humans. So very, very different to what we did last year. Now, having said that and keeping that very clearly in mind, then, we can go to say, okay, accepting that, what were the pluses of the fact that we all sat still in our homes? Well, there again, there were many negatives, of course, because there is a heightened uh, mental health issue because we are social animals and we weren't able to socialize as much as we needed to. There was a high price paid by older people who had to isolate. Um, so there's a, there, there's a huge psychological and mental health price that was paid. At the same time, there were pluses. There were pluses in the sense that we all realized that as much travel as we had been doing prior to 2020 was perhaps not necessary. Tom and I are a very good example of that. We, you know, prior to 2020, we were on planes nonstop. And I have now not traveled since February of last year. So I'm coming up on a whole year without getting on a plane. That doesn't mean that I stopped working. That means that we shifted the way we work. Um, and that's worked for me. It doesn't necessarily work for everyone because for people who have three, four or five children crawling on top of them and they don't, they can't really, um, find a, uh, an, an appropriate workplace at home that hasn't worked. But for many people, it has worked. Tom, what would you like to add? What are your hopes the pandemic could change? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the main point I'd close out with what, with what Christiana was saying is that we, we have, we as society are struggling with lots of issues at the moment, and many of them are to do with our collective understanding of how we progress. And many politicians have said very um, um, eloquently 
that the challenge that we have is if we cannot have a shared agreement on what is true, then it's very difficult for us to agree what progress is. And the Trump administration was the classic example of that. But I live in a country that had Brexit that was given to people through a whole bunch of misinformation that then led to a very serious political outcome and has had very significant consequences for people in my country. Um, now, what I hope the pandemic will do long term is it will help people to realise that we need to trust in science, listen to the warnings of science and actually take a serious look at what experts are telling us will be the implications of actions. And it is not as valid to be a non-expert who speaks well and can connect emotionally with people as it is to be someone who does rigorous and serious research and can point out to what the consequences will be. Let's close off with an, uh, with an urban perspective. In your book, you state that reimagining and restructuring cities is crucial to solving the climate challenge puzzle. Can you elaborate on this a bit? How can cities play a role in this? The reality is that cities, 70% of greenhouse gas emissions comes from cities, even today. And we are going to see, we are already seeing a rapid urbanization of the planet to the point where already more than half of humanity lives in cities and we will quickly be at two thirds. And if we are going to solve climate change, then in order to do that, we have to make cities work for a regenerative future that is sustainable. Um, we see right now that much of the responsibility, and it varies around the world, all mayors have different responsibilities under their jurisdiction. However, all mayors have in common the fact that they care about clean air, they care about green spaces, they care about livability, and people have begun to realize that actually they can create a city that brings all of the best elements of a life that's close to nature, a life that has all these benefits of um, being close to the natural environment, but actually bring that into cities. And we can create cities that are thriving, that are green, that are regenerative, that are great places for kids to, and kids to play and people to work. So we see cities as fundamental building blocks of this regenerative future. There's going to, a lot that needs to be done in terms of transportation, in terms of mobility, in terms of buildings and heating and cooling, etc. But we unpack much of that in the book as key decision makers. And Christiana and I played a role for a long time with the Global Covenant of Mayors based out of Brussels, uh, 7,000 cities around the world. We spent some years delving into some detail with how cities can respond to this crisis. And it's very exciting. The level of ambition, the, le the you know, interestingly, mayors are so close to the individual voter that they really feel and understand the importance of clean air and these other different issues in a manner that national leaders don't always get that kind of feedback as quickly as mayors. So we see it as a real intersection point for change. And we wanted to make sure that was reflected in the book. And interestingly, um, the need to make cities much more livable than they are now has never been as important and as urgent as it is in our almost post-COVID days, because uh, we have seen a, uh, an, an, a drain of many uh, city dwellers who decided during those COVID days that they couldn't stay in the city because there's not enough green, there's not enough uh, clean air. And many of them have actually chosen to move permanently out of cities and into much more rural areas, especially because uh, we now know that uh, tele teleworking is actually possible. And so if cities and mayors want to remain as the magnet uh, for, uh, for human living, and if they want to 
continue to be basically the engine of the economy, they will have to make cities much more livable and much more attractive. They will have to bring the conditions of rural areas, much more green spaces, clean air. Um, they will have to bring that into cities. They will have to make a, an, an effort to encourage local uh, food production, local um, water uh, catchment, much more um, local renewable energy generation, certainly much better green areas and, um, and gathering areas that are appealing to, uh, to the population. So I would say actually post-COVID, now in 2021, cities are competing to keep city dwellers in the cities. And those cities that are able to do that, that are able to improve the quality of life for their citizens, and by the way, contribute to solving climate change, those are going to be very successful cities that will keep and attract more citizens. But cities that don't, cities that continue to be congested, polluted, loud, and inefficient, will not be very attractive to uh, citizens and they will see, not everyone for sure, but they will see an important drain of, uh, of some of their citizens that would be able to move to more uh, rural areas. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.